Hi there, I'm Paulina, LWC Studios' managing producer. Lend me your ear for a minute. The Supreme Court's decision to repeal Roe v. Wade devastated me and many of my colleagues in podcasting. It continues to be important that we stand together in supporting a person's right to choose. That's why I'm participating in the Listen to Women Coalition. It's a group of audio creators dedicated to uplifting and creating pro-choice content. We've launched a merch campaign with 100% of proceeds going to the National Network of Abortion Funds. You can find a link to Listen to Women on LWC Studios' Twitter, at LWC Studios. Buy a t-shirt, wear it to your next hang to go to a live podcast show and on the way to the polls. And tell a friend. Thanks. Seventy million adults in the United States have a criminal record. This is season two of 70 Million, an open source podcast about how people, neighborhoods, counties, and cities are breaking cycles of incarceration, starting with the local jail. So I got to experience the uncomfortability of just being stuffed in a cage and all. That was real scary. We're keeping people down there with rats, roaches. They got black mold. And we spend $16 million on it every year. We eliminated cash bail bonds in the city of Atlanta. There is no one who's been incarcerated, including myself, who has been helped by incarceration. I'm your host, Mitzi Miller. And today... I have a very special guest in the studio with me, the show's creator and executive producer, Juleka Lentiwa-Williams. Hey, Juleka. Hey, Mitzi. You're sounding good today. Why, thank you. So excited that you could be here. Today, you're going to tell us about a very interesting interview that you did. I can't wait. So I talked to a rising comedic star. I mean, that's my opinion, but... You know, I think that that's exactly who he is. His name is Felonius Monk, and he's a writer, comedian, activist. And he's one of the few people I've seen so publicly and openly speak about his experiences with incarceration, including everything he's had to go through to get his life back on track. And that includes stuff that might seem mundane, but it's actually really significant. He's from Virginia, where the governor recently restored civil rights for people with criminal records. It was a huge deal. Monk was one of thousands of people who got his new chance. So here's a clip of him on a TV show called The Damage Report. He's talking about his stage name and how hard it is to get away from a criminal record. Or, you know, Felonious Monk is a a joke. It's a play on the idea that, you know, this is where I came from. But it's also uh, an acknowledgement of how a lot of people will see me no matter what I do. Again, been home 20 years. You know, Mitzi... He's in on the joke, which is what adds a lot of credence to what he's saying, that on one hand, he understands that the moniker fits because he does have a record. But on the other hand, it's sort of like a court jester move to say, ha, you think you're going to limit me by calling me felonious. But in fact, I contain multitudes. I am so many other things. Smart. Yeah, he's really sharp. Um, Here's another clip of him where... He's on stage at Laugh Factory in Chicago. And again, he very unabashedly talks about his past. What's going on, Chicago? How you feeling? I'm good. I'm good. I'm not as good as you. I don't know what that is that you're smoking, but that is fantastic. I want 
I've sold a lot of drugs, and I've never sold anything that made people that happy. All righty then. <laughs> No, he's um, he's really funny. I actually got to see him live in D.C. the very same day that we were in the studio for for this interview. And what I enjoyed most about talking to him was his candor and insight into how he ended up in prison and how much intent went, actually still goes, into becoming yourself after that experience. Honestly, Mitzi, for me, talking to Monk was like talking to someone I'd known forever. Having grown up in the Bronx in the 80s and 90s, so much of what he talked about were things I experienced from a distance as a girl. So many young black and brown men and boys essentially disappeared in our neighborhood after being sent to prison. In Monk's case, everything started when he was involved with a robbery and he had a gun. He told me he was convicted of robbery and the use of a firearm. A friend of mine called me felonious Monk, but I got arrested pretty much in his front yard. So he's, I've known him since I was a kid. You know, he's 13, 14 years old watching me be a knucklehead. And, um, you know, I moved to Virginia when I was young. I'm, I'm a young kid. They haven't seen anything like me. I'm a, you know what I mean? I'm a monster <laughs> in the neighborhood. So I take the police on a high-speed chase from, you know, yeah, like I'm running, I'm driving from Norfolk State through all of these neighborhoods. I'm making a bunch of left turns because I know they have to call them all in and they have to slow down to call it in. They can't make these. And then right, I'm going down a straightaway and this lady was in the left lane and decided the last minute she didn't want to make a left and got in front of me. And I hit her car and did a bunch of damage to her car and the car that I was driving slowed me down enough for the cops to catch up. They still didn't catch me. I got out and ran some more and I eventually got back to the neighborhood that my grandmother lived in. So all of the neighborhood kids from six years old to 20, saw me get arrested. That persona is not a new thing. I've always been a little, not afraid of authority. It wasn't so much that I didn't like authority. I just didn't think they could hurt me. I, you know, if somebody shoots at you and your grandmother says she's going to spank you, well, spank is not worse than a shooting, right? If you, if you fight a dude who's 6'4", 300 pounds, and your dad says, I'm going to spank you, my dad's, you know, at that time, 5'11", 6 foot, 155 pounds. I'm not scared of you. I mean, you can spank me, but I'll be okay. So none of that's influencing me to do anything differently than I'm doing. What influenced me was actually getting arrested, not being able to talk my way out of it. The sentence guideline said I was supposed to get 12 and a half years, and the judge said 32. And that's when I realized that um, those guidelines didn't apply to me. None of that applied to me, and I was taking risks that I couldn't afford. I was 19, and the judge said 32 years, and I went, I don't even know how long that was the first time I remember being afraid. My knees buckled. I don't know that I was about to faint, but it felt like I wasn't going to be able to stand anymore. Right. And that's what changed me. Nothing, nothing that happened prior to me getting arrested. And it wasn't the time that changed me. It was the loss of control over my life. Once I lost that control, I couldn't, I didn't want to feel that anymore. He said that the reason he'd started getting into trouble in the first place was because he wanted to move out of his house after his mom sent him to live with his dad. They hadn't seen each other for years. My dad is uh, my dad was a good dude, man. I say that now because uh, he's a good dude now, and you just forget shit. Like, my dad used to smoke crack, like a lot, a lot of crack. He was good at it. And 
He's like a professional. He used to tell me, she's like, I'm not a crack addict, I am a drug user. I was like, that's, that's not better, fam. That's My dad was getting high then. I didn't have any respect for him when I moved in. You know, the day I got there, you're the guy who doesn't keep your word. You're the guy who, li you lie to women, you lie to kids, you, you, what do you do with your life? And then I find out you're getting high. You know, my first job was at a Hardee's and my dad would knock on my window at two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning. And back then we were making $3 and 25 cents. You can't work 40 hours if you're in high school. So I'm working 20 hours. So you take the 325, multiply it by 20, take the taxes out. When my dad comes and asks me for 50 bucks, he's taking my week's check so he can go and get high. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, living with my dad was, you know, um, bigger house, bigger yard, because he was living with his mom. But, yeah, it, it was such a drastic change. And, again, when you're a kid, you don't always have the language to process what you're feeling. But I know I'm angry, and I, know, I don't know who I'm angry at. I'm angry at my mom. I'm angry at my dad for being this person. But since my mom was the person who was always there for me, I don't know I'm angry at my mom yet. I'm still, you know, I'm still hurt that I hurt her enough to send me here. I think it's my fault. Yeah, she wanted to love me, right? And I, I'm, she, she loves me. That's, let me be clear. My mom absolutely loves me. She also resented that I existed because I took her life from her. And she knows in her brain that I didn't do it. But every time she looked at me, she's reminded of it. And I look it, like my father just broke a piece of himself off. and built. So every time she looked at me, not only did she see her dreams miss, but she saw the dude who took them from her. And then my dad goes and has another kid 30 days after me. So I'm not just the reminder of her dreams gone. I'm reminder of the first guy that she loved, loved, and maybe ever loved. But every day she looks at me and that's it. And I didn't understand her anger. And I also didn't understand. I was born the year before Roe versus Wade. There's no other option for her other than to illegally abort me. So my mom had some things she couldn't say to me. You can't say out loud to your kid, I wish you weren't here. So then how do you then face the prospect of jail when you feel this powerless? You just wake up every morning and try to make it to bed at night. Like there's no, you know, there's no, um, and people say, well, how did you get through? Did you read books? Did you do? I mean, nah, man, I just, for six years, it was, please don't let me have to stab someone. Every day you wake up going, please don't let me have to stab someone. Because since you can only control you now, Right. You can't control. You know, you've lost control of the process. You know, you can't control those other people. All you're trying to do is maintain control of that one body that you have. So for me, every day was not avoidance of those situations, but letting everyone know there's going to be consequences for those situations. I don't want to do it, but let's try to avoid that. That type of fight or flight where you wake up every day. In that, And, you know, if you grew up in a rough neighborhood, it's, it's a similar thing. It's just, you know, exaggerated. It's growing up in, you know, the first crack era where everybody's selling crack outside. You know, it's, it's happening right in front of you and, and crackheads are walking up and down the block and shootouts are happening on the block in a neighborhood where people used to fist fight. That's what prison is just all day, every day. 
and there are no good guys. And up until my last year, I really didn't have any problems. You know, last year when you're about to go home, everything happens. You know, it's always someone that that's it, it may be jealous that you're going home. Um, some guys aren't even jealous. They're just they're going to miss you. Like that's a written, you know, men can't say to other men, hey, man, I don't really want you to go because you helped me get through this time. So what they do is. Man, I don't like you no way, man. Old punk heads. I hope you go out there. I hope I hope you get shot the first day. Right. It's a lot of weighing the consequences and doing something that you've never done before, which is learning how to um, control your temper. Mm-hmm. And the one place where you think your temper would benefit you, right? You want people to be afraid of you. That's the place I had to learn how to control my temper. Let's talk a little bit about the time that while avoiding being in a clique, you have to figure out who you are because now these are six years of your young man life, basically. It's the wrong six, too, because that early on, even under the best circumstances, you don't, at 25, you don't know who you are, right? I'm 19 and I'm not surrounded by good influences, right? I'm surrounded by books, but I don't have anyone to bounce the information I'm getting in the books off of. Or no one who um, is going to add a critical lens to it, right? We're, you have no context. I have no context for it. So I'm talking to a guy who learned how to read two weeks ago, right? I'm really teaching guys. And I'm, I was a teacher's aide at one time and was amazed at how many 40-year-olds couldn't do fractions but could sell drugs. That was the way that I taught them. I was like, how do you know how many quarters are in an ounce, but you don't know how many fourths make a whole. There's guys who knew was nine was a quarter of 36 because that was a quarter of a key. It was the same with guys who couldn't read uh, or maybe they could sight read. And when you sight read, but you haven't read enough books, sometimes words that look similar become the same word. And that changes everything. Conscience is conscious. It's all weird. So I can't read a book that's trying to make me introspective and then talk to someone about that. Not to say that, you know, everyone there was an idiot. That's not, there was some brilliant people there, but you also need um, a universal language to be able to have this communication. And we, if we're not all speaking the same language, it's very difficult to have these conversations and you can't call home and say, Hey dad, what do you think about Oedipus? Cause me and my mom, you know, we cool, but I don't like you sometimes. But some, you know, it, so what, what ends up happening is, you um you decide who you think you want to be and you work towards that. And I remember going in for parole on my first or second time and telling them all I wanted to do was come home and get a nine to five job and live a regular life and, and find a woman and marry that woman and maybe have a kid and, and get a you know nice little ranch house and live for 40 more years. Seven years ago is when I got charged. Clinton and the super predators and all of that was happening. I was the person they were talking about. You know, I wasn't a, you know, I had two ounces of weed and most of it was for smoking. I was a bad guy. So, yeah, it's still, there's still repercussions from it. So when I got my rights restored a couple of months ago, it was a big, huge deal to me because I had written myself off, at least in that area. So how did you get your rights restored? Threatened a couple people. So, you know, if you put a few people in a chokehold and look somebody else dead in the eye, they'll... Now, nah, um, <laughs> <laughs> Governor Terry McAuliffe, former governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, 
actually attempted to give every nonviolent criminal their rights back and any violent criminals who had um, finished their parole, probation, and paid all their fines. Uh, I think there were a couple of exceptions, like maybe for uh, murder and, and rape or child abuse. A few exceptions, but I was in the group of people who would have automatically gotten them back. Thing is, I missed that window because the state Supreme Court said no. They said right. you can't unilaterally do that. That was a law. You can't undo a law. So they had to go through the process. Well, of course, Virginia is a purple state. So the you know the red side of that purple was like, nah, there's nah. no way. Yeah. Well, what Governor McAuliffe did in his stead was he made the process so streamlined that all you had to do was type in your name, your social, and they would start the process automatically for you. And unless you still had open fines or upcoming cases, nine times out of 10, you got your rights back. I have a friend who, like I said, I got my rights back. He checked, he asked me, you know, what the process was. And I said, oh, just go to this website, put your information in, wait about six weeks and it'll happen. He put his information in, he already had his rights restored. He just didn't know it. Right. His rights have been restored for eight months and he didn't know it. Even in Virginia where the process has changed, there's no benefit for them if you're voting. They don't want the right. brown because predominantly we're the ones who are uh, disenfranchised. So what's happening in Virginia is, yeah, they got their rights back, but there are a bunch of people who don't know it. And so for me, I don't have the biggest platform, but it's big enough to let a few people know. Um, you know, it's you see what's happening in Florida. The, the state, the citizens voted to give felons their yeah. rights back. And immediately the legislature went back and said, no, 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 wait. But only the ones who, you know, stand on one foot and cha-cha now, y'all. So it's a lot more to this than just felons not having their rights. You have to look at the states where felons don't have the right to vote and look at the states where they automatically do. Uh, Maine and Vermont, two states with 95 to 96 percent of the population is white, never lose their right to vote. You could be a felon. You could murder seven people right now. You still will vote in 2020 from jail. Meanwhile, in Florida, where there are a lot of brown and black people, you get three weed charges and you never vote again unless somebody gives you a special waiver. Those are the types of things that keep a Stacey Abrams from winning, that keep an Andrew yep. Gillum from winning, that keep uh, a Trump in the White House. This yep. isn't it's not democracy. We know that inherently. But, um, yeah, we have to tell people if we can fight that apathy and we can inform people who do have the right to vote, then maybe we can change it. So in the 27 years, was there a time where you weren't as open about it, where you were just trying to move on with your life, regular citizen? I can pass. You know, I'm, I'm uh, civilian passing, I'm, as the, the whites say. I'm articulate enough. I can clean up and shave and put a suit on and get it tailored and drive the right car. But reality is there are a bunch of guys who didn't have the same Uh, opportunities that I did. I had uh, the background with a family that was supportive. I had a a really good educational background before I was incarcerated. So I didn't, I didn't come home to the same struggles everyone else came home to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's extremely selfish. And I I really, really absolutely hate those guys who get one step up on the ladder and look down and, and on the people who are still where they just left. So for me, not being honest about it, wasn't just harming me. It was harming everybody else who went through what I went through and didn't have the opportunities. I remember how hard it was just to get a ID, driver's license. Mm. I don't remember where my birth certificate was. I was locked up for six years. Where's my social security guy? I don't know who's got it. So now I have to go through the process of finding documentation that says I am who I say I am just so that I can get a social security card so that I can then go and get a birth certificate so that I can then go and get a life. The process of doing that means someone had to be patient enough to drive me around and do those things with me. 
because you don't come home to, you know, oh, here's uh, $50 because you can't, made it home. Congratulations. You, you come home from the rough. So it was, it was family, um, really close family that made time. They took time out and took shifts to make sure that I got everywhere that I needed to go to get all the documentation I needed to get. What about the people who don't have that? The parole officer isn't always a guy who's trying to help you. Sometimes he's a guy at the end of his 20 years who's just trying to get through his next two without killing himself. You know, if I'm not honest about what I'm going through, what happens to those people? They're already falling through the cracks. We know what the recidivism rates are. So if the people who've gone through this aren't talking about it out loud, those people get ignored. So what I like about his story is that it's not a like straightforward redemption story. He clearly experienced great personal loss. That's a really good point. There was one particular segment in our interview where I saw his body language change, you know, the way he talked kind of slowed down and his hands came up to his face a lot as he was talking. It seemed really difficult for him to get through it. Take a listen. What happens in your family when you go away? And how do they stay present in your life? So I lost my grandmother and my grandfather while I was in prison. And my, my grandmother in particular, I was extremely close to. And she passed six months before I came home. And that was, um, that was the toughest one to forgive myself for because I missed her last five and a half years. And you can't, you can't undo it. So, and I still don't know if I've forgiven myself. I've moved on. I've moved past it. I deal with it. Um, but I talk about her an awful lot. And she's been gone 22 years. She was also the person who held um, my mother's side of the family together. She was more than the, the matriarch. She was the glue. Um, she was the conscience. If she made you angry, you realized you did something wrong. Her not making it those were the toughest days I had, and which was crazy because, again, I've gone through five and a half years. I am guaranteed to go home six months from now. And my grandmother passed, and I didn't even know if it mattered if I went home at that point. So I think the family kind of rallied around knowing I was coming home. But I was with her, you know, hours before she passed. Uh, I was able to get them to release me um, for a hospital visit. They call it a deathbed visit. And so I got to see her right before she passed. And I think that made everyone hold on just a little bit longer. So when I came home, they were a little more embracing. It seems like you've very smartly swapped out Power for influence. Like, yeah. power is sort of like very black and white. You yeah. have it or you don't. You give it away, you take it away. But influence is much harder to manage. But it also seems like you skipped trying to influence mm-hmm. adults in your life. Yeah. But then you've chosen to amplify by influencing a much nas- much bigger national conversation about yeah. jail reform and the, so these things. I think we get bogged down sometimes in trying to make the people we love think like we think uh, because we love them. We want them to be on board. Right. Mm-hmm. We, I, you, I, I learned this new thing and I want, it's going to help you. Please, please agree I, with me. Yeah. And then they go, no. And you go, OK, how can I do the most good? 
Is it staying here and arguing with you at infinite and, until my eyes bleed? Or if I really believe that this thing is beneficial, at least in a conversation, that was the thing that was taken from me when I went to prison was power, but influence wasn't. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a very good observation. Um, Thank you. Even with my comedy, though, there's a thing where it's not about me anymore. It's about trying to find a way to slide something in there that you didn't notice I was doing. I want to be clear on this. There is no one who's been incarcerated, including myself, who has been helped by incarceration. That is a factual statement. Right. There's no rehabilitation. There's no rehabilitation. So when we're talking about criminal justice reform, it needs to start there. It needs to start at the place where we're, we're not, unless you're going to give everybody life for it, stole a piece of gum, get life. Or if you're going to send people back out on the street, then you damn well better send them back on the street better than they were before, or you're just cycling them through. Now, what we know is they are just cycling us through, and that's intentional. So the reform has to come with the dismantling. So when people talk about abolition, they're acknowledging that there's no way to really reform this system as it currently states, as it currently stands. It's just the people involved in it are too corrupt. You can't cut enough of it away for there to still be a system after mm-hmm. you've cut all the bad away. Right. So you have to pretty much dismantle the system and start it over. That's a super progressive, super aggressive sentence. But if anyone can show me how you can take the racist element, the biased element, the corrupt element out of our police forces, off of our benches, out of our prosecutors, out of the DA's office. If you can show me how we can, just through policy, make those things go away, I will shut up. And as of yet, no one's been able to show me that we could do that. That was comedian and activist Felonious Monk speaking with our executive producer, Juleka Lentigua-Williams. We'd love to hear about reform efforts in your communities. So please email us at hello at 70millionpod.com. For more information, our episode toolkit, and to download the transcript for this episode, visit 70millionpod.com. 70 Million is an open source podcast, so we invite you to use our episodes, transcripts, syllabi, and episode toolkits in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere you find them helpful. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. This podcast is a production of Lantigua, Williams & Co. It's edited by Jen Shan and Casey Miner and mixed by Luis Gill. Our associate producers are Adiza Egan and Cher Vincent. Our marketing specialist is Kate Crochelle. Our staff writer is Nissa Ree. Our intern is Emma Forbes. And our fact checker is Sarah McClark. Juleka Lantigua-Williams is the creator and executive producer. I'm your host, Mitzi Miller.